This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Korberlein. We're in the midst of a great die-off. If humanity continues its industrial practices at their current rates, we could lose a quarter of the planet's plant and animal species in the next hundred years. On our show today is Dr. Christy Tyler, an Associate Professor of Environmental Science at the Rochester Institute of Technology. She's going to share with us all the ways biodiversity impacts life on Earth. So I understand one of your areas is in biodiversity. And that's a word that we often hear a lot. We talk about the biodiversity of a region. And to me, it seems like a whole bunch of different type of species in one area. Is it that simple? It can be that simple, that it's really the number of species that are present in one particular area. We can also think about it in terms of the number of type of genes that you have within a population. You can have genetic diversity. Um, so okay. that the fact that you're different than me is a type of biodiversity. You can also think about it in terms of having ecosystem diversity, which might be the different types of ecosystems that exist in the United States or on the planet. So okay. Now, when you mean ecosystems, that would be... I guess, is that a collection of organisms? or is An that ecosystem is the all of the organisms in a particular area, and also it includes the physical environment. Okay, um, so the so, terrain and right, the environment Right, so we could way. define an ecosystem, so you can have an ecosystem that's a, you know, a maple forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have an ecosystem that's a pond, uh, or an ecosystem that's a wetland um, or a lake. So all of those types of things would count as ecosystems. So we can talk about biodiversity in terms of having lots of different habitats that are available for organisms to live in. Right. And then in different types of environments, if you had, for example, a boreal tree forest would be different from a more downstate deciduous forest or something like that. Exactly. You can think about biodiversity on in many different scales. So it can be things as small as the genome of different organisms all the way up to the level of different biomes. Why does this always come up in in conversations about the environment? Why is biodiversity important? In the simplest sense, which is the sense you originally were talking about, we're losing species okay. um, very rapidly. And the projections for species loss are almost mind-bogglingly huge right now. You know, with the projections of climate change, there's the most recent IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They just had their most recent report come out um, Mm -hmm. last year. And if we keep going in the direction that we are, that in the next 100 years or so, we may lose 25 to 50% of all the species on the Earth. So that's why it's become a more important topic and a a topic that you hear about more these days. Mm -hmm. It's not that biodiversity is more important, but it's just that we're really very concerned about the trajectories that are happening and what we're seeing in terms of extinction. When you lose a species, it's gone forever. Uh, You can't bring it back. So these are irreversible changes. So that's why there's a lot more concern within the scientific community about losing biodiversity. Okay. The importance of biodiversity is happens on many different levels. Mm-hmm. Biodiversity is important to people because we get a lot of important goods and services that we have from the organisms that live on the earth. Right. So we depend on having biodiversity in our environment in order to support our food supply. 
in order to provide clean water. Many of our pharmaceuticals come from organisms originally. You know, we can go out and look at all of the different plants in a rainforest and see which one of them happens to fight cancer mm-hmm. um, or happens to lower blood pressure. And many of our most important pharmaceuticals come from natural resources. We gain an immense amount from having these organisms alive and well on the earth, and especially the ones we don't even know about. So it's kind of a selfish thing. This this will benefit us. It is. And so uh-huh. we should have that level of biodiversity. Right. There's also the perspective of this organism deserves to exist because it exists. People on the earth that have the capacity to destroy biodiversity or to preserve biodiversity, we can act as stewards for the environment in order to make sure that that does not happen. Okay. Now, I know one one of the things that I think a lot of criticism comes in that is you hear about, you know, some slight, small variation in species, and I, I think it was the spotted owl in Oregon, and people are going, oh, this is the spotted owl variation A as opposed to the variation B that looks exactly the same, but somehow it's so important. If you look at it in the general way, it looks like these two species are the same. They're in the same environment. They look very, very similar. Why is it important to distinguish between two or to preserve two as opposed to saying they're they're basically the same thing? When you're saying that they're basically the same thing, you're saying they're the same thing because they look the same? Scientists will say there are these two different species, and you look at a photograph of them, and you go, well... I guess they're kind of different. They both look like owls. In terms of what they look like or right. the way we, we may classify them, they, they look the same. If they're technically two separate species, then genetically they're different from one another. So technically they can't interbreed. Um, okay. So they are two separate species. And with many of the species that we're trying to preserve, we often don't know what role it is they play in an ecosystem. Uh, There are a lot of species that look very similar and even for many years have been classified as the same species. Uh, And then we actually find out later that they're not. And it's with these more advanced molecular techniques that we're able to figure out which species is which. There have been lots of renaming of species uh, because of that. So I think that there's enough unknown about what species actually do in the environment Mm -hmm. uh, that there's efforts to preserve these species. Um, the right. spotted owl that you mentioned is a very controversial species. Right. The Endangered Species Act was brought into play. Right, and then it becomes a political species. issue very as political. well as just simply a scientific issue. And that has been a particularly divisive issue in the right. Pacific Northwest with people's livelihoods are at stake because right. this owl... I have to lose my job because of some stupid owl. Right, this little tiny bird that you know, is kind of this nondescript little owl. Because of it, we can no longer log certain forests and people are losing their livelihoods. Uh, so it's this pitting human economy and human livelihood against species. Right. That's where we begin to dig up these issues of, well, does it deserve to exist because it does exist? Right. Uh, and it has some intrinsic value that we as people should try to preserve. It sounds almost like a cautious approach in the sense of if you don't know what something is affecting in the environment and you know that there's a shift then then it would seem to be prudent to say, let's figure out what's going on before we just start 
eliminating a species or ignoring it. The Endangered Species Act has often come under criticism because it takes this single species approach Mm -hmm. where it's the Endangered Species Act. It's not the Endangered Endangered Ecosystem Ecosystem Act. Act. And in some ways, that's a very limiting thing about the Endangered Species Act. It doesn't act to preserve whole habitats unless there's one endangered species on it. Now, what about things like wetlands? Are there things like wetland protection? Is that, that's a separate thing from the Endangered Species Act? It is a separate thing. Uh, Wetlands protection comes under the Clean Water Act, actually. The protection of wetlands, which started with the Clean Water Act in the 70s and then keeps being amended, but it's been amended many times, protects wetlands because they provide clean water. So like having, a filter? They act like a filter. Okay. Um, they also provide flood protection, and they're a very important habitat. They actually do usually house numbers of threatened species or species of concern. That is a way of, to some extent, getting at this Ecosystem Protection Act, mm-hmm. um, but it's very specific to wetlands. So it doesn't apply to other things. If there were other ecosystems that you wanted to protect, there's no specific act, at least in the United States, of dealing with that? Not per se, except for things like waterways. Waterways are fairly strictly protected, navigable yeah. waters. Yeah, we like especially. our waterways. We like our so. waterways. Moving water actually has been recognized for longer as a really valuable resource that we need to protect. Its wetlands have kind of come under fire because for the longest time we viewed them as really being useless and that they were much better off being filled in and used for agriculture or building on top of them because what's the use of a wetland? They're a place that breeds mosquitoes and we don't like to go there and they're kind of scary and we could drown and there's a lot of mud. Yeah. What we've realized with our increasing knowledge about the value of those systems is that they're actually incredibly valuable. Of all of the ecosystems, they have the most value per unit acre of any system because of their value as a water cleaning system uh, and for habitat. That's interesting because it seems like, you know, we've made that shift from something that seemed to be worthless to something that's actually valuable. Right. That shift. We have. And so as we found out how this ecosystem works, we've seen how it connects to other ecosystems and, and our own environment. How does your research specifically connect to biodiversity? What's One of my areas of, of research, since we were talking about wetlands, is about wetlands. Okay. And I'm more and more, as I've moved through my career, interested in ecosystem restoration. It was something before I even went to graduate school, I was talking with my undergraduate advisor about wanting to do ecosystem restoration. And his view was, well, you need to go and learn how ecosystems work Mm -hmm. um, before you can go restore them. So you should go and learn about wetlands, and then you can work on restoring them. So essentially, that's what I've done without being quite so cognizant of that path. You know, I started as a master's student looking at salt marshes, which are saltwater wetlands. Um, And then now that I've been here in Rochester, I'm working more on freshwater wetlands and doing a lot of work with ecosystem restoration and wetland restoration. And one of the things I'm particularly concerned about with ecosystem restoration is the invasive species that tend to come in. Okay. When you build a new ecosystem, it's usually a pretty disturbed environment. You open up right. a lot of habitat, uh, you create this brand new wetland, but there's lots of open space, 
and invasive plants are really, really good at coming in and taking over open space. And we normally don't think of things like invasive plants as much as we might think of invasive animals. Australia is the classic one where they'll have these these massive influx of mice, for example, because of the invasive species. But plants, you think, they don't travel. How could they be invasive? Plants are incredibly invasive because they travel so quickly. They have seeds that are often windborne or they can be moved around by birds um, or by other animals, or we plant them. We're the cause of we our own invasion. We think that they have some other value. So for example, one of the most invasive wetland plants is purple loosestrife, which is a, actually a very beautiful flowering plant, uh, which is why it's here, is because it's got these beautiful... It's, it's a flower. We like these, so let's just plant them in our yard right, near exactly. this wetland. Right. They have these beautiful fuchsia flowers, then they bloom late in the season. They bloom in August and September when not other many other plants bloom. Right. Uh, and that's, so that's why they're here, is because mm-hmm. they came over from Europe for people's gardens. Right. Um, they're pretty and we like them. We like them. And then it turns out that they're also extremely in- effective invaders and they thrive in wetlands and they can take over uh, and have cost millions of dollars in order to try to remove them and restore wetland habitats Uh, so for example Montezuma swamp has acres and acres full of purple loosestrife that they've been working on trying to control wetlands are full of invasive plants Um, the most the one I'm most concerned about is the one that once it's in is really hard to get rid of is the common reed. The tall ones with those big fluffy flowers on the top that are six or eight feet tall. That's a a very invasive plant. Going back to this idea of genetic biodiversity, it's actually native to the United States, but there is a population that was brought in from Europe that is far more invasive than any of the other so even though it's the same here. a similar variety that one little bit of edge sets it able to to completely take over right so there was some question about why we were seeing such an expansion of phragmites in mm-hmm. both saltwater wetlands and freshwater wetlands over the past few decades and it wasn't until it was a graduate student actually who did the molecular work to determine that well it's not the same strain that we had had here before that is now the one that's really invasive that's the one I'm most concerned about because once it's it's in it doesn't go away right. and it's the type of plant that you have to use either heavy duty herbicides to get rid of or you go in with a bulldozer it would harm the ecosystem by there and it's just that small genetic change it's that looks small the same change, but right that genetic change is all that matters it looks more or less the same except it's a little bigger uh, so that's a, a species of concern in a different sense and that's the challenge that's a small the small thing can make a big difference right You're listening to One Universe at a Time. I'm your host, Brian Corberline. We've been talking with Dr. Christy Tyler, Associate Professor of Environmental Science at RIT, about biodiversity. In the second half of our show, Dr. Tyler gets to ask the questions. She would like to know more about the historical staying power of Kepler's laws of planetary motion. So we are going to be talking about Kepler's law, Mm -hmm. which is something that I've heard of. Uh He's one of those scientists that you hear a lot about, but it's not something I know very much about. So I am curious why the work that he did has become, he's someone that we still talk about, even though it's been hundreds of years, as being someone who really created a, a paradigm shift in how we view the way the universe works. 
early ideas of astronomy were that the Earth was the center of the universe, and the sun and the moon and the planets would orbit the Earth. And from the Greek tradition, it was orbited in circles. And pretty early on, you can tell that doesn't work. So if you look at the motions, they don't move in perfect uniform motion. They speed up, they slow down, they do weird things where Mars, for example, will move along its orbit and then day after day start moving backwards for a bit, called retrograde motion, and then go forward again, which is just really weird. And if you treat them as circles going around the Earth, that doesn't work well at all. So there were various ways to try and do this, and one of the popular ones was, well, what if we put circles on top of circles, what are called epicycles. So instead of the planet moving in a circular path around the Earth, it moves in a circular path around a point that moves in a circular path around the Earth. And so you basically make orbits upon orbits upon orbits to try and explain the speeding up and slowing down and the retrograde motion and all of this. This gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. As we were able to start measuring more precisely, you would have to add more epicycles or you'd have to adjust things like shift the circles off center a bit or do all these kind of weird things. So Copernicus proposed the idea of the sun being the center of the universe. He still proposed that everything moved around in circles. This was interesting, but it didn't really work particularly well. It's one of those things where he happened to be right, but not as much based on the evidence as you would think. When Kepler came along, Kepler worked under Tycho Brahe, who had probably the best set of observational data known. And when he got access to it, he tried to match it to patterns. And over time, he was able to come up with three simple rules for describing what the motions of the planets were that actually work really well. And the big shift was he didn't use circles. He used ellipses. So he said that the planets moved around the sun in ellipses, that they would speed up when they were closer to the sun and slow down when they were farther away from the sun. And then he, his third law was a mathematical relationship between how long it takes a planet to orbit and how far away it is from the sun. So you said he used the measurements from his mentor. How did they make these measurements? Right. This was before telescopes. So in order to really make these measurements, what you did was basically line up the star along a path of sticks. So, so there was a, a device called a quadrant that was basically this quarter circle that you could look at a star through a hole, for example, when the star passes by in the middle of the night, you'd look at it through a hole from a certain point of view in order to see that hole. Well, the line between your perspective and that hole where the star is gives you the angle. And so if you know the right angle at the right time and you apply a bunch of math, you can calculate exactly where that planet is. Even though they didn't have telescopes, they actually had fairly precise ways of measuring where something was at a particular time or where it was relative to another star. And since the, the stars don't really move, at the time they thought they didn't move at all, you can use that to very precisely measure out the path of the planets. And that's how you would calculate this out. So then they came up with all of these measurements. Did they know at the time the order of the different planets? Basically, yes. I mean, you could infer based upon some rough calculations of distance that weren't particularly accurate, but also based upon how they moved through the sky. So if you look at Mars, Mars will move through the sky faster than Jupiter or Saturn. And the reason for that is because they're closer to the sun. So we did have an idea of 
the order of the planets and maybe roughly how far away they were. Everything was a relative scale. So at the time, you could do an angle measurement to determine Mars is a certain distance away from, from the sun compared to Earth. Finding out how far away Earth is from the sun or how far away the moon is from the sun was hard to get an accurate measurement. The relative distances you could actually get easier than you could the actual distances. Roughly that when Copernicus was proposing these ideas that everything doesn't rotate around the Earth, Mm -hmm. that was fairly controversial. It was, yeah. Uh, With Kepler, was it the same thing? Did it take a long time for his ideas to be accepted? It's, It's actually kind of interesting because the way it's typically told is Copernicus proposed the Sun centered universe and it got some controversy. And then when Kepler proposed Kepler's laws, everybody changed immediately. And so we now have the theory that works and that was it. And that's actually not what happened. When Kepler proposed it, it was an interesting calculation and it allowed some calculations to be done easier, but it was still controversial. And it wasn't until Newton actually came up with the law of gravity and derived Kepler's laws from physics that Kepler's laws became accepted. So there was this transition where for maybe 50 years or so, Kepler was still somewhat controversial. I wouldn't say it was, you know, hotly controversial, but there were still legitimate astronomers who said that's a nice trick, but that doesn't mean that's what the actual planets are doing. Why do they move in an ellipse? Why isn't it a circle? Well, we know now that what's keeping the planets in their motion is the force of gravity. So the sun exerts a force of gravity in all the different planets. And that means it's constantly trying to pull the planets toward them. The reason they move in ellipses is because they're also moving along their path. So they're moving perpendicular to the direction that the sun is trying to pull them. And so the sun's gravity keeps changing the direction. If the planet's path takes it a little bit closer, because it's basically falling, it speeds up. And so it goes a little bit faster. Well, when it goes a little bit faster and it's moving in this circular motion, it'll tend to want to fling out more. So it's like anything, when you spin it, it wants to fling out more in a straight line. If it falls a little bit towards the sun, it speeds up. If it speeds up, it tends to fling out. So what happens is it kind of orbits slightly where it's a little bit farther, a little bit closer, a little bit farther, and that's what makes that elliptical path. One thing to emphasize is that it's, even though it's elliptical, the orbits of the planets are not that elliptical. They're often drawn as really, really egg-shaped elliptical orbits, and they're not. The orbit of the Earth, for example, the closest distance and the farthest distance from the Sun differ by about 1%. Oh, I didn't so, realize that. I yeah, that it's weird. really tiny. And so if you, if you put an, a circle next to or overlap a circle on the Earth's orbit, it looks pretty close to being a circle. I mean, if you saw it drawn, it would look like a circle to you. So how does the fact that it is an ellipse affect life on Earth? It affects life on Earth to some degree, but actually not that much. We don't get hot and cold seasons of winter and summer because of the elliptical path. In fact, in the Northern Hemisphere, the point of closest approach when we're closest to the sun is actually January 4th. So it's in the middle of our winter. The reason is because the seasons are actually due to the tilt of the Earth, not due to the orbit. There is some variation in the amount of light that we get due to that distance, but because it's so small, it's negligible compared to the tilt. Do those ellipses change over time, or is it always constant? The orbits of planets do shift. And again, this is a very small thing, so there's a lot of small changes that happen. 
But yeah, over thousands of years and millions of years, the orbit of the Earth shifts, the ellipse will migrate slightly, uh, you'll have these small shifts. And on, on large geologic scales, this can have an effect on the environment. But it's not radically shifting over time. So in our entire lifetime, it'll shift by this measurable amount, but not a large amount. And that's why we see these very large shifts in climate. That's, that, that can be part of the reason, yeah. I mean, the thing is that climate is very complicated in terms of not only what the sun is doing, but also what the Earth's tilt is doing, shift the amount of, of an ecosystem by a tiny bit, and all of a sudden you have a radical change. The orbits and stuff do come into play, but it's hard to see the direct correlation in that sense. Why is it that Kepler is the person that we remember so much, but his mentor is not? I think part of it is that in science, we love the person who comes up with a brilliant idea, and we tend to ignore the person who did all the grunt work to gather the data that makes that possible, you know, in in terms of that. And we see that a lot in astronomy. You know, we see, well, Tycho Brahe gathered all this stuff, all this data, and then Kepler used that data to come up with a brilliant idea, so we remember Kepler. We have the same thing, Hubble, the Hubble's law, Hubble's constant of the expansion of the universe. And what he did was he showed, well, the distance to the galaxies and their redshifts are related. So we can tell that the universe is expanding. Brilliant discovery. But of course, it's based upon data from other astronomers. Probably the worst case scenario is that there was a group of women astronomers at Harvard that were actually called uh, computers that were doing this massive gathering of data when, when astronomical photography came in. You could then take a whole bunch of photographs at night, and then someone has to analyze that data. So you would see this piles of data that had to be analyzed in detail by hand. And of course, women could do it because the men were busy taking the photographs. And so there was this group called the, the Harvard Computers. It was also called Pickering's Harem because Pickering was the head astronomer at the time. And many of these women made massive contributions to the advancement of astronomy by actually analyzing the data and finding patterns. And they're remembered less than the men who then put it forward as this great idea. And the same thing happened with the helical structure, the DNA helix, mm-hmm. with that there was a lot of other people that were important in that, and it, but they're not the ones that communicated the idea. Those are the people we remember, the ones that were able to actually communicate the idea. That or the, the person that puts that last piece into the puzzle. So everybody right. else works on it, and then we have that one last piece, and the one person picks it up and pops it right in. Oh, they're brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so then yeah. Newton built on what Kepler derived. Right. Kepler's laws are just an observational set of rules. So this is what the planets do. No idea why. What Newton was able to do was actually come up with a theory of gravity and show that a force of gravity causes Kepler's laws. So that connection, something that you could do here on Earth and test gravity, could now be applied to the heavens. So in in many ways, uh, Newton was the first astrophysicist by taking physics that we can do here on Earth and then applying it to the heavens. So what's the difference between astronomy and astrophysics? There's less of a difference now than there used to be. Um, Typically, you would say an astronomer is someone who gathers data, makes observations of things. Astrophysics is about applying the theoretical structure of physics to what we observe, so figuring out why we see what we see. Those lines have blurred a lot, 
in the sense that a lot of astronomers who actually gather data are also doing the astrophysics to put the pieces together. And a lot of astrophysicists are using data that's gathered in order to analyze this stuff. A lot of the fields have merged together. So there's less of a difference. There's less of a difference, yeah. How do modern astrophysicists still use Kepler's laws? Even though Kepler's laws is a set of rules, and it's still somewhat of an approximation because the planets exert gravity upon themselves as well, it can be used as a very clear way to determine the mass of an object. One of the coolest ones is if we look in the center of our galaxy, we can actually see stars orbiting very quickly in a pattern of Kepler's laws. And looking at the orbits of these stars, we know that there's a mass of something very dense, very massive, about the mass of four million suns in the center of our galaxy, and it's a supermassive black hole. So Kepler's laws can actually let us study black holes. Wow, that's really amazing. This guy that lived so long ago that did these very simple observations and calculations. Yeah, and we still use it today. We've been talking with Dr. Christy Tyler, an Associate Professor of Environmental Science at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Our program is produced at RIT by Mark Gillespie, with support from the RIT College of Science. I'm your host, Brian Korberlein. Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time.